0: I'd like to do now is just introduce our guest speaker for this morning, and our guest is Mike Yankoski, and Mike and his wife, Danae, are recent graduates of, well, he's 25, but uh, graduates of Westmont, which is down, I think, in Santa Barbara, which is really suffering um, for the Lord down there. And uh, they both live in Sisters now and are going to be starting, actually, seminary in the fall through Regent, which is in Canada. Mike took, while he was in college, took a number of months and lived as a homeless man um, throughout major cities in the U.S., to basically understand and be able to empathize fully uh, what that situation was like and what are the things that are kind of causing that that we wouldn't understand looking at it on the surface. He wrote a book about that called Under the Overpass. We have a number of those books for sale um, after the service. Uh, recently, Mike and Danae went to, I think it was Ecuador and then Uganda, to live with people that don't have clean water, once again, to be able to understand that from the inside out. And they're going to be basically trying to challenge the church on how we can best love the least of these um, in the world in the name of Christ. So it's a privilege to have Mike with us this morning. So, would you welcome Mike Yankowski?
1: Hear me? There it is. Hey, thank you so much for the chance to be here with you this morning. I'm, I'm really humbled and excited. I know a little bit about what Antioch is doing, as Ken mentioned. My wife Danae and I live in sisters, and uh, we get to hear a little bit about what God is doing through you guys and how you're developing this push towards sustainable and wise missions that are actually going to go and have the best positive impact in places of need around the world. So I'm excited to be here today. I'm really, I'm really thankful for this chance. I just got back last night from a trip out in Wisconsin, and uh, every time I get to travel to different parts of the United States, I'm always so thankful to come back to this area. Uh, Wisconsin is no exception of that. If any of you are from Wisconsin, I apologize, but man, I'm so thankful to get back here. Um, But my buddy, I flew into Chicago, and one of my good friends from Westmont was actually in Chicago, so we road tripped together up to Wisconsin. It's about four hours, and so we just talked, Um, caught up on life, talked about what God's doing, and really started just having some great conversations. And he he said a statement. He kind of threw out a thought to me that I want to share with you this morning because it really impacted me. And I agree with what he said. What he said was, you know, Mike, 99% of the people that I know, including Christians, but 99% of the people that I know, whether they're Christians or not, their primary motivation in life, their focus in life is really, if you boil it down, comfort and security. 99% of the people I know, the main motivation for how they live their lives, for the decisions they make, their primary paradigm in going about their daily existence is, is this going to be unsafe? Or is this going to make me uncomfortable? And finding people who are willing to question that and step outside of that and say, you know what, that's not what it's about. They're really rare. They're very rare. I'm going to ask you to do something maybe it makes you a little bit uncomfortable. I want you to close your eyes right now. Typically, when I start speaking, when I speak, I I, I usually save scripture for the end, to kind of wrap things up, to really put an exclamation point, or to be the final thing that you walk out the door with. But today, I just feel like I want to read a passage of scripture to you, and I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. You don't have to follow along with me. When you open your eyes, you can write down the reference, so you can go back and you can study it later, if you feel like it. But I'm going to read you a passage from Mark 8. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. As a matter of fact, he's just called the whole crowd to him. He's saying that this is really important. He draws people to him and he says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? Lord Jesus, would you be with us as we know that you are over these next few minutes? Lord, as I get the chance to share a little bit about my time and Sam's time living on the streets as homeless men, as I share a little bit about Danae's and my recent experience in Ecuador and in Uganda, Lord, would you be here with us? Would you be working and moving in powerful ways? God, would you be accomplishing your purposes? Would you speak through me? If I can pray so bold a claim, if I can ask that, Lord, speak through me, accomplish your purposes. Take my words into the hearts and the minds of these men and women of faith. Be glorified, be pleased, be lifted up, and make us into the men and women that you want us to be. We love you, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. So I'm going to jump back a little bit and kind of share a little bit of my story so that this all makes sense in context. Because I grew up in Colorado right in the shadow of the Rocky Mountains. And I grew up in a great family, and I never knew what poverty really was. I mean, like most of us, we know that somewhere in the world, there are people who are hungry, there are people who live in garbage dumps, there are people who don't have clean water, don't have enough clothes. I knew that intellectually, sure. But as far as what it meant, what it felt like, what it was to be in that situation, I had no idea. I grew up in an upper-middle-class family, always had whatever kind of clothes I wanted to wear, always had enough food to eat, had a great house to live in, a mountain bike, a car, a laptop, all that stuff. Right before I became a freshman in high school, a few of my friends came back from a youth evangelism training camp, and they shared their faith with me. Because up until that point, I wasn't a Christian. I grew up with an atheistic father and an agnostic mother. So faith, the idea that there's a God who loves us and made us and sent his son to die on the cross and save us, that didn't really enter into the picture. But my friends that night called me up on the telephone and shared their faith with me, and something inside me resonated with that. The idea that there's meaning and purpose and a point to all of this impacted me. So I gave my life to Christ and entered into high school, starting to go to youth group and trying to learn about the scriptures and trying to learn who this God was, who this Jesus is. One of the things that God did to really shake up my life and plant me in my faith was he took me on a short-term mission trip to the Dominican Republic. And I'm there the first afternoon out in the community kind of walking around with a few of my friends and we see these little boys come walking along the dirt path and, you know, they don't have very many clothes on. One of them has a pair of shorts on. The others are not having, they don't have any clothes on. No shoes. They're running around and the boy with the pants on has a bottle cap tied to a piece of string that he's running with. And it's bouncing along the road behind him, you know, and he's got this big grin on his face. And I'm thinking, what is this kid doing, a bottle cap tied to a piece of string? But then it dawns on me that that's the only toy he has. That his dad or his mom has reached into the dump, into the ditch outside of their house, found a bottle cap, tied a piece of string to it, and given it to their son as a toy. And I'm I'm astonished by this, so I follow this group of boys back to the house. And it was like that house that you just saw on the photographs. A few pieces of wood stuck in the ground coming up. Scrap metal wrapped around the outside. Banana leaves woven together to make the roof. And I enter into that house and I sort of introduce myself with broken Spanish. And I realize that there are 11 people in that shack. It's 10 feet by 10 feet maybe. And they're living there. And this is the extended family and everybody calls that place home. And that just wrecked me. I come back to the United States and I feel guilty about all the stuff that I have. So I try and give it all away. I want to say right now, guilt is not the appropriate response. It may be the first response, maybe the initial response. As I'm sharing some of these stories, maybe you feel kind of a little bit guilty. When you see photographs like that, you feel guilty. My suggestion, my encouragement to you is if you feel guilty in any of this, bring it before Christ and say, Lord, what do you want me to do with this? Because in my experience, what he does is he may use guilt as a catalyst to start stirring us up, but then he'll move us into a conviction, and from conviction into action. I think that's the appropriate progression. But I came back from the Dominican Republic and graduated high school, and then went out to Santa Barbara, as Ken said, suffering for Christ. I mean, gosh, Santa Barbara. Bend is incredible. Santa Barbara is incredible in its own right. I mean, all the movie stars drive up from L.A. on the weekends and have their weekend homes in Santa Barbara. It's gorgeous. Growing up in Colorado, I loved flip-flops, but, you know, it snows, and you can't wear flip-flops year-round, but Santa Barbara, you can. If there's a reason to go to college, that's definitely the reason to go to college in Santa Barbara. So I move out there, and I'm thinking, gosh, Westmont Christian School, awesome liberal arts program. I'm going to get a computer science degree, and then I'm going to go on and make a bunch of money doing software. Next Bill Gates or whatever, you know, I'll settle for Michael Dell. That's cool, you know? Gosh, I'm going here, and I'm loving life. I'm going, you know, I'm going to these theology classes, right? And I'm studying the scriptures, and I'm learning about the history of our faith, and I'm writing papers on compassion. I'm analyzing the parable of the Good Samaritan. I'm doing all this kind of stuff, and, you know, I'm going to church on Sunday. I'm active. I'm involved. It's, it's awesome. I'm doing everything that I need to do. I'm checking the list off, you know? Then one Sunday, I'm sitting in church, and the pastor is pushing us hard to be who we say we are. His whole premise on on the passage that he's looking at is, you know what? We have to be who we say we are. That if you look at our lives, if if you were to just put our life out on the page and analyze it, you ought to see differences about how we spend our time, how we spend our money, how we interact with people, how we respond to needs, whether or not we're willing to bridge the gap and communicate with somebody who looks different than we do, who smells different than we do, who is different than we are. In the middle of that church service, I was thinking about the previous evening, Saturday night. I was downtown Santa Barbara with a few of my friends from Westmont, and we were walking from the movie theater to our car. We had gone out, hung out, saw in a movie, and then we were gonna drive back up to Westmont. And as we're walking on the street, on the left hand side are these two homeless guys, and they're sitting there. And my response shocked me. Because as I pass them by, I do everything that I can to intensify the conversation with my friend on my right. You know, I'm making a joke or making him laugh so I can laugh. And I can ignore these two guys because I'm thinking if they know that I can't see them, that I am relieved of responsibility. I don't have to engage. I don't have to respond. But if I notice them, then I have to do something. So I pretend like I don't notice them. And I'm sitting in the church service and I'm wondering, how does that line up with the parable of the Good Samaritan that I just wrote that 15-page paper on? How does that line up? How does it line up with Jesus saying, if you seek to save your life, if your core motivation is comfort and security, if your focus is selfish, you're going to lose your life. You won't know the true life that I came to give you. How does that line up? In the middle of that church service, there came the idea to go live on the streets as a homeless guy, to go and actually enter into that lifestyle. And it was me, I had a picture in my head of me with long hair and a beard, sitting underneath of a bridge somewhere, trying to panhandle and make enough money to eat that night. It took me completely by surprise. I walked out of the church service that day and didn't really know if that was what I was supposed to go and do or whatnot. But over the next 16 months... God really confirmed that idea. He really showed me and my buddy Sam that we were supposed to go and actually do this, to live on the streets, to become homeless. We wanted to do it to better understand what it's like to be a human being made in God's image, living on the streets, looking up as you sit on the ground, looking up and watching people pass you by and pretend like you don't even exist. We also wanted to ask, how do churches respond? You know, how do Christians respond? Because I know how I failed to respond, but how do other people respond? How do other Christians respond? We wanted to try and engage the church from that position of need and see what the response was. We decided we were going to go and live in six different cities for a total of five months. It was going to be Denver, Washington, D.C., Portland, Oregon, San Francisco, Phoenix, and San Diego. And as much as we could for those five months, we were going to get into that lifestyle. Now, I need to say this, and this is very obvious I'm no longer homeless, I didn't grow up homeless. So my experience, choosing to step into it and then getting to step back out of it is fundamentally different from the 700,000 some people who are homeless at this moment in the United States of America. It's fundamentally different. But as I share these stories, as I kind of reflect on what it was like to be out there, think about what it would be like to be out there for 10, 15, 20 years. To have grown up in a foster home situation where you were severely abused as many people who were on the streets were. And to run away from that and to find comfort and community in the homeless communities in different cities. And to say that that's where you want to stay. To have lost your job and to have not been able to pay rent and have gotten evicted from your apartment and you're out on the streets and you don't have an address. The next time you go and try and fill out a job application, people can tell that you don't have an address, you don't have a shower, you don't have clean clothes, and no one's going to hire you. Try and put yourself in their, their shoes. Try and think about it from that perspective. The very first day, Sam and I were homeless in Washington, D.C., we had a friend drop us off outside of Union Station, where all the trains and subways come together. And we had packed a little bit of stuff, you know, I had a backpack, Sam had a backpack, and in that backpack, you know, a couple books, a Bible, some journals, one pair of shorts, one pair of jeans, a t-shirt, a sweatshirt, a guitar with which to panhandle, and a sleeping bag that we had picked up at thrift stores. Sam had more or less the same amount of stuff. So we walked to the trunk of that car, opened it up, grabbed all that stuff, and our friend drove away. And I looked at Sam, and Sam looked at me, and we're both like, What did we just do? You know, I mean, because like normally, if I'm hungry, I go to the refrigerator. If I'm tired, I go to my room and take a nap. If I have to go to the bathroom, it's just down the hallway. I don't have to worry about these things. And my comfort, I've depended on so much. Now it's gone. How do I live here? Sam and I walked into Union Station down to the food court where everybody's there in a scene. I mean, you know how some kids can be, right? They're just screaming and carrying on. He does not want to eat the piece of pizza that his mom has bought for him because it has pepperoni on it. And pepperoni is the most disgusting thing in the whole world, obviously. And I look at Sam and Sam looks at me and I'm like, I love pepperoni, man. How about you? He says, yeah, totally. So, but the mom gets frustrated because, you know, her kid's making a scene in front of all these people. So she takes the piece of pizza over to the trash can and throws it away. And I looked at Sam and I said, you know I, I like pepperoni, but not that much. There's no way I'm digging into the trash after someone else's food. There's just no way. I'm above that, right? You know how long it took until both Sam and I were ready to dig into the trash after someone else's food? Only two weeks. Two weeks, and that idea of I'm above that was gone. I'll never forget how it happened either because Sam and I were in a subway sandwich shop. There's a two story restaurant. This is July in Washington, D.C., it's really hot in the afternoons. We were pretty much constantly dehydrated. So we went into the subway, thankful for the air conditioning and a chance to fill up our water bottles at the drinking fountain. So Sam and I fill up our water bottles and we don't have enough money to buy any sandwiches, but we go up and sit down in the upstairs dining area of this two-story subway sandwich shop. There's nobody else there at that time and we sit down and a few minutes later, a group of people walk in and they buy sandwiches and they come up and they sit down diagonally across from Sam and I in this square room. Now, something kind of interesting is happening because these people are not looking in our direction. They're pretending like we aren't there, which Sam and I find very funny because we haven't showered in two weeks. You can imagine what we smell like. There's no way you could be in the same room as Sam and I and not know we were there. You would smell us, okay? So it's interesting watching these people pretending like we aren't there. But something interesting happens. They sit down. They begin eating their sandwiches, and they pull out Bibles and start doing a Bible study. And I'm looking at Sam, and Sam's looking at me, and we're both thinking, hey, these are Christians. You know, maybe they're reading James two fifteen 15 and 16, right? Which more or less says, if you see someone who's in need, but you don't do anything about it, what kind of faith is that? Maybe they're reading that, and they're going to think, hey, we could go and get sandwiches for these guys because they're not eating. We're in a restaurant. Wow, we could do that. A few minutes later, another group of people walk in, buy sandwiches, come up and sit down. In the third corner of this square room, they pull out sandwiches, start eating. Pull out Bibles, start doing a Bible study. Sam's looking at me, I'm looking at him. Our odds are going up. This is really good. A few minutes later, no joke, another group walks in, buys sandwiches, comes up, sits down, fourth and final corner of this square room. They start eating, and lo and behold, pull out Bibles and start doing a Bible study. This is almost comical. A few minutes later, everybody's looking around, says, Hey, these are Christians, you know, these other three tables. Forget the guys in the corner, but wow. So they pull their tables together and start talking. This is a small room. Sam and I can hear everything that they're saying. They're talking about what church they go to. They're talking about the things they're involved in. They're talking about what Bible translation they use, NIV, ESV, NLT. I looked at Sam and I said, killing for a BLT right now. You know, we're in a room full of Christians. Everybody's talking about their faith, their faith in Christ, their community, their fellowship, all that they're involved in. And nobody's looking at us. Every single person in that room, once they had said, hey, great to meet you. Awesome hanging out. Hope to run into you again walked out the door, and threw away the rest of their lunches. I looked at Sam, and I said, you know, I saw that guy throw away the rest of his meatball sub. What do you think? So we walked over the trash, pulled off the top. It's summertime, a bunch of flies buzzing around. Looked down inside and think, no way. But I don't, I don't care. It doesn't matter anymore because I'm hungry, okay? So reach reached down inside, pull it out, and there's a meal for you. As I mentioned, Sam and I would panhandle a lot in order to try and make enough money. We would sit at busy intersections and try and make enough to eat that night. We took a tip from an elderly homeless man and homeless woman one afternoon in downtown D.C. because they said, you know what, you guys should go to Georgetown. It's Friday night. There's going to be a whole lot of people out walking around. You'll probably do a lot better panhandling in Georgetown. So we went out there. We set up our guitar shop right in front of this beautiful five-star restaurant. I mean, people are coming and going, walking along the boardwalk of the Potomac River. There's so much wealth. There's so much wealth walking past. You can just tell by how people are dressed. And this restaurant is a fifty, sixty dollar a plate joint. It's it's very nice. Everybody's there. In four hours of panhandling from six PM to ten p.m., Sam and I have made a dollar and eighteen cents. And we're getting kind of frustrated, you know. I mean we're not gonna eat that night. It's pretty obvious. And so we're thinking, you know what, let's finish one more song and then we'll go sleep underneath, you know, a bridge somewhere and we'll worry about breakfast tomorrow. I think there's a place, there's a church that'll serve breakfast tomorrow. So we get ready to finish our last song, and all of a sudden this group of kids comes walking along the boardwalk. And these little boys are just about as out of place as Sam and I are in front of this beautiful restaurant on a Friday night. And they see us playing our guitars, so they run up and kind of surround us. And the leader of this group of boys steps forward. You know, he's kind of nervous. He's like 10. And he says, "Um, Excuse me, sirs, we're from the Boys and Girls Club of America. We're raising money for our baseball uniforms. Do you think you could help us? (laughs) And I looked from him to my guitar case and back at him. And I said, sure, man, We $1.18 if you want it, it's yours. All of a sudden, though, from the very back of this group of kids, the youngest, smallest one, I mean, he couldn't have been more than seven or eight, starts shoving his friends out of the way. He's just pushing them out of the way, and he comes up, and he stands right in front of me. Sam and I are sitting on the ground. This kid's right in front of us, and he's silhouetted against this restaurant scene. He looks me straight in the eyes, and he says, hey, hey, you don't have any money at all, do you? You don't have anything. I said, Well, you know, a dollar and eighteen cents, bud, but other than that, no. Put his hand in his pocket, pulled out a dollar and twenty-five cents, put it in the guitar case, and said, Don't worry about it, bro. I got you covered. And I loved it. Sam and I both, our mouths just dropped because we were thinking about the passage of Scripture where Paul says, We serve a God who loves to use the simple things of the world to shame the wise, and loves to use the lowly things of the world to bring down the high. It's the Jesus, it's Jesus pointing out the widow who was put in the two copper coins and saying, she gave more than everybody else because she gave out of her poverty, they gave out of their wealth. She gave all she had, trusting in God. And Jesus points to her and says, "She, look at, look at her, notice her, notice what she's doing. As I mentioned Sam and I wanted to see how churches would respond. And I wish that I could stand in front of you now and tell you that every place we went, every church we went to was just awesome, that people embraced us and engaged us. I wish I could tell you that, but unfortunately, I just can't. I can tell you a few encouraging stories for sure. It's about one church in Phoenix where Sam and I woke up. It was on a Saturday morning, and there was a guy shaking my shoulder, and both Sam and I woke up because we thought, you know what? We're getting kicked off the church's property. It happened several times before. So we bleary eyed kind of sat up and said, don't worry about it, man. We'll leave. We'll leave. Don't call the cops. We're going. It's okay. And he said, no, 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 no. Just chill. It's all right. It's all right. Why don't you guys roll up your sleeping bags and wait here? I'll be right back. And he went inside the church and he came back out a few minutes later with two cups of coffee, a plate of fruit and bagels. And he set it down on the ground before us. And he said, guys, hey, (laughs) I know it's not much. I mean, come on. It's not much. But it's a start, hopefully. And you know what? Our pastor's going to be by in a few minutes. And I know that we know some organizations in the area who might be able to help you guys out, might be able to help you find out job opportunities and help you get your identification if you need that. You know, we want to try and connect it. We want to serve you in any way that we can. That type of response, do you know how many times we got that in five months of being on the streets? Once. Once. The more typical response, unfortunately, happened the next weekend, also in Phoenix, Sam and I slept on the front doorsteps of a church on a Saturday evening, hoping that Sunday morning, as people were coming to the service, they would see these two homeless guys sleeping in front of their front door and do something, anything, engage, have a conversation, find out if they can do anything for it, just, just a start. Sam and I both rolled over and looked through the front doors of the church. They were glass. We could see into the sanctuary, and the sanctuary was packed. Everybody had gone through the side doors of the church so that they didn't have to interact with the two homeless guys on the front doorsteps. We were both just like, what happened? Did they step over us? I mean, what, what happened here, you know? But what, <laughs> what was interesting a few minutes later, or what had actually woken us up, was the start of the service. They turned it on the speakers outside so that these two homeless guys could hear the word of God, but they never had to engage. That was the more typical response. Another church, also in Phoenix, as a matter of fact, Sam and I slept outside Friday evening. Saturday morning, we woke up because a church breakfast is going on. Now, Sam and I are waking up hungry, and we're watching these big buffet trays full of bacon and eggs and pancakes, and the smell is wafting our direction, and Sam and I are so stoked. We're thinking, hey, this makes perfect sense. Church breakfast, two homeless guys, we're going to get food this one. This is awesome. As we're sitting there, a few minutes later, these two guys come walking across from the building where the church breakfast is being set up to where Sam and I have slept the night before. They're moving briskly, and as they get closer to us, we can tell that they're a little bit frustrated. The lead guy, as he's walking past us, says, guys, you're not supposed to be here right now. You need to get out of here. And he walked into the sanctuary. A few minutes later, they both came back out, and Sam and I are still there, of course. We're thinking, gosh, we're not leaving. Are you kidding? This is breakfast. And saw that we were still there, and began to get a little bit frustrated. He said, you know, guys, I I told you you're not supposed to be here right now. What are you still doing here? And I said, well, yes, sir, we heard that you said that we're not supposed to be here right now, but we don't understand why. Why do we have to go? And he said, oh, uh, these, these are church grounds, and church grounds aren't for this. You need to leave. I decided to push the question a little bit because I'm thinking, come on. So I said, well, what are church grounds for exactly? I mean, let's, let's talk about that. And he said, you know what? We could stand here and debate that all day long. Bottom line is, they're not for this. Leave. So we left. That was Saturday morning. Sunday morning, we came back for the church service, and Sam and I came in. We sat over on the left-hand side, and it was interesting. We got there about half an hour before the service started, and slowly the room filled up around us, except for this 10-foot radius where nobody wanted to sit. It was so interesting to be in a room full of Christians and be utterly alone because of what we looked like and what we smelled like and who people perceived us to be. Then in the church service, though, We kind of stand up and begin to gather our things. And from the back of the room, we hear this guy just screaming. He's saying, guys, guys, guys. And he runs across the back of the church, down the main aisle to the pews, right behind Sam and I. And he just, he throws his arms around both of us in a big hug. We step back, he steps back, and he's just got tears streaming down his face. And he's saying, guys, I am so sorry, I am so sorry. I can't can't believe I did that. You know, I mean, I kicked you off the church's property during a church breakfast. I am so sorry. Would you forgive me? And we said, yeah, man, it's cool. Don't worry about it. You know, we're used to it by now. It's okay. Stop crying, you know. He said, no, but you see, you shouldn't be used to it by now. If there's any place you should be loved and accepted exactly as you are, it's the church. Now, Sam and I really agreed with that because if you think about it, the church keeping people out because of who they are or what they're messed up with, or what we think their life is like. It's pretty antithetical to the point of the church, don't you think? It's kind of like a hospital that keeps sick people out. It doesn't make any sense. Jesus calls everyone to himself so that he can begin the process of renewing them, of making them like himself. So when you and I keep people out, closing the doors, man, at that point in the conversation, the guy began to get a little bit embarrassed. And here's why I'm sharing this story with you, because I think it's so easy for all of us in our fast-paced lifestyles with all the things that we have going on, all the responsibilities to begin to compartmentalize things. Listen to what this guy said. He said, you know what? <laughs> i got to be honest with you guys. I, I, this is pretty embarrassing. I, I'm the director of homeless outreach at this church. we <laughs> are like, wait a second, what? The director of homeless outreach kicks us off the church's property during a church breakfast? Huh. How does that work exactly? How it worked? How it works? How it works in our lives? Homeless ministry at that church was on Tuesday. So, Saturday morning, when two homeless guys show up, well, come on, that's not homeless ministry time. That's church breakfast time. Different crowd, different people, you know. You got to focus on other stuff. Really? Is that how it works? because you know when i read the scriptures when i read the gospels when i when i look at who christ is that's not exactly what i see this idea of compartmentalization that you and i can say to god you know what okay sunday morning sure it's yours it's all yours god i'm going to do whatever you want me to do i'm going to sing loud i'm going you know i'm going to listen and gosh i'm going to worship you but man sunday afternoon saturday monday through friday that's kind of my time i'm pretty busy and i really don't have time for you god except maybe an hour in the morning and maybe tuesday evenings when i'm at my home group That's kind of what we do, isn't it? But if you look at Christ, if you see how he lives, if you see the apostles and the disciples, and Peter saying, we've left everything. We've left it all. You are Lord. We've left everything. That's why Paul says, if Jesus didn't get up, if he wasn't raised for the dead, he wasn't raised from the dead, then you and I are to be pitied above all men. Because we've left everything everything and put our singular hope in that, that he offers us life, that he gives us his spirit, that he comes and he works within us. Now, I don't know about you, but it's easy for me to hedge my bets, isn't it? It's easy for me to say, you know what? (laughs) Yeah, I believe that, sure, but just in case, just in case, I'm going to make sure I got more than enough money in the bank, I'm going to make sure that I got more than enough clothes. I'm going to make sure that I got more than enough for me. I'm going to make sure that I'm really comfortable and that I'm really secure and that everything's safe because just in case that's not real, just in case God isn't as big as he says that he is, just in case he doesn't love us as much as he says he does, I'm still going to be okay. Francis Chan, who's an incredible pastor and speaker down in Southern California, he was preaching and I got the chance to hear this sermon. He was talking about a guy in his church who had a really severe gambling addiction. And then slowly God brought him to himself and was able to heal him of that addiction. And Francis was talking to this gentleman and just kind of asked him how he was walking, Christ was going, and just, you know, trying to find out, like, is this guy really getting it? And the guy began to sense that a little bit and he said, Francis, look, look, I'm all in. I, I'm all in. I got nothing left. Like, I am all in. All my chips are on the table. I've, I'm all in. Is that you? Is that me? Or do I I have this little stash back here that just in case this bet fails, I still got something? As Ken mentioned earlier on, Danae and I just got the chance to return from Ecuador and Uganda. We've been talking about homelessness, some of the severe needs that exist in our own country. We went to Ecuador and to Uganda with the focus of trying to understand more about what it means that in our world today, 1.1 billion people, that's billion with a B, don't have access to clean drinking water. We wanted to find out more about that and what that means. That Because of that fact, 5,000 kids a day die around our world. Because they don't have access to what you and I go and turn on the tap for and can drink without thinking. Because they don't have access to water that's as clean as what you and I flush down the toilet. We wanted to go and find out more about that. And I'll tell you, the experience just blew us away, both on the negative and how incredibly difficult it is, but also on the positive. One afternoon, we were walking through some of these communities in Uganda, some of these villages that don't have access to clean water. And we walked to this one family's kind of cluster of huts. This is rural Africa, very dry, very hot. Some of the hottest days were over 110 degrees. And we walked into this place... And this woman came out to greet us, and this man came out to greet us, and a few kids were there. But as we kind of surveyed the scene, we noticed that there were eight graves in kind of the courtyard of this family's cluster of huts. Eight graves. And what shocked me was that six of these graves were this long. Because this family lived very close to a contaminated water source, because they didn't know that by drinking the water that's got pond scum on it, where the pigs and the cows come to drink, that they're going to get sick, that their kids are going to get sick. And the reality of that statistic struck home. And Danae and I are both just like, six graves? Six, six kids died from this one family? Wow. Wow. But on the positive side, we walked to another village another afternoon. And as we came into this village, 10 women started screaming and dancing and singing. And they ran over to us. And they're dancing and singing. They're singing in the Luo, the Luo language. And we don't really understand anything that they're saying at all. We're with our friend and our translator. And as they're singing and dancing and just going nuts in a circle around, Danae and I were like, what is happening? What's going on? So we asked our translator, "Like, what are they, what are they saying? I don't, what are they singing? He said, they're singing, praise God. Praise God. Clean water has come. Our children no longer die. Praise God. Because the organization that helped us in these communities had put in a well eight months previously, and had begun the process of sanitation and hygiene training to help change the lives of the people in this community. It's a Christian organization, and they were doing it, and it was an extension of the gospel of Christ, and it was so powerful to see that because people were coming alive in more ways than one. People were coming alive. The bottom line is, we live in a world of great need. Whether it's here domestically, whether it's in Nicaragua with the kids who are growing up in the dump, whether it's in Uganda with people who don't have enough water, whether it's in, in Thailand in the sex trade, whether it's in Ethiopia, parts of our world where 854 million people are undernourished, Almost a billion. There's such great need around our globe. One of the things I want to encourage you today, I want to push you today. If you've been stirred up a little bit by this and you're trying to figure out how can I get involved, how can I be active? A few weeks ago, I had the chance to be here when Steve Bauman, I think that's his last name, Bauman, Bauman, from World Relief spoke. One of the things that he said I thought was so powerful and so right on, he said, look, focus on one thing. Focus on one thing and dig in deep. Do well. So maybe some of the things that I've mentioned, maybe it's homelessness for you. Maybe it's child sex trafficking. Maybe it's hunger. Maybe it's water. Maybe it's HIV and AIDS. Maybe it's deforestation and economic destruction because God created the earth and he loves it. Maybe it's any one of these things. My encouragement to you, my challenge to you today is digging deep to it. Find out everything you can about it and what the best practices are to help make an impact and a difference in that specific area of need. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I'd like for you to open to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. I want to show you this just to make sure that we're still being theologically sound here. Because it would be possible, and I've heard people say this, and I've often said this without making sure that I'm right on with this. It would be easy for you and I to look at the great needs that are all around us and think, you know what? Gosh, we got to do something, and if we don't do something, then God's not going to love us. That's wrong. It's flat-out wrong. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, sets us straight. Ephesians 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That's orthodoxy. You and I are saved by grace through faith. It's God's doing. But continue. Listen to what Paul says. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. We're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So what that means is, You and I, when we come, we surrender our lives to Christ. When he comes in us, begins making us new, when he gives us his spirit, when he begins directing us, as you and I learn how to let go of our stranglehold on our lives and on comfort and insecurity, he can begin to move and to work in the ways that he's created us for so that we would accomplish his purposes, his good works. The correct posture for you and I is to emulate Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane saying, God, take this cup from me. I don't want it, but... Not my will be done, Jesus, yours. Not my will be done, Father, yours. Anything, everything, it's yours. I'm all in. I'm all in. That's what John says in First John four nineteen. We love because he first loved us. We surrender our lives because we are loved, and that is what enables us to love others. Not, not a desire, not a hope of changing the world, but love, God's love in us and through us. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Lord Jesus, we thank you and we praise you. We lift you up, God, for all that you have done for us. God, for creating everything that exists, for sending your son into this world instead of just wiping it out, (laughs) frankly, but rather sending your son into this world to love us, to die on the cross for us, for raising him from the dead, for giving us the apostles and the disciples to show us what it means to surrender ourselves, to surrender our lives in order to love you and to love others. Jesus, I pray that you would show us what that looks like, show us what that means. Bless these men and women of faith who collectively come together and form the church Antioch. God, would you be working in them and challenging them and forming them and making them, God? and to exactly the people that you want them to be? Would you reveal to them the good works that you have created for them to walk in since before there was time? Would you reveal that in your timing? Lord, would you come quickly? Would you return? Sometimes when we look around the world, there's so many needs, it's just overwhelming. Would you return? But until you do, Jesus... Teach us to live lives worthy of the calling that you have placed on us as sons and daughters of the Most High King. And may that enable us to let go of security, to let go of comfort, and to echo you, Jesus, in saying, not my will be done, Lord, but yours.
0: Lead us. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.